0: You ready?
1: Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the Fall Guy.
0: We're doing later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes.
4: This week, we're going to revisit one of our favorite interviews from the past, our interview from 2021 with Boston Globe sports columnist Dan Shaughnessy. Dan joined us to talk about his experience covering the 1980s Boston Celtics, including a free throw competition with an injured Larry Bird, which he lost, and a story about Kevin Millar before Game 4 of the 2004 ALCS between the Boston Red Sox and New York Yankees, before the Red Sox would win their first World Series title in 86 years. Today, we figured it would be fun to go back and listen to Dan's thoughts about the current landscape of the Boston Celtics and Boston Red Sox at the time. Starting with the Celtics, during our conversation, Dan did discuss the potential of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, and since then, they have continued to develop into all-star caliber players. In fact, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown were both named to the 2022 NBA All-Star Game, and are coming off of just missing their first sniff of an NBA title. Despite the growth of these young stars, Dan did express concern about the team's overall toughness and resilience, and since then, the team has clearly addressed these issues and proven to be a powerhouse in today's NBA. On the other hand, the Boston Red Sox have not had the same success. As Dan discussed in the original interview, the Red Sox ownership has made some questionable decisions in the past, including the 2012 salary dump of Adrian Gonzalez, Carl Crawford, and Josh Beckett, as well as a more recent 2020 salary dump of Mookie Betts and David Price to the L.A. Dodgers. Since we last spoke, the Red Sox have not made any significant improvements to their team, and their performance on the field has been lackluster. It seems that the team is still suffering from poor management decisions they've made in the past. While the Boston Celtics have improved, the Boston Red Sox still have a long ways to go. Thanks for listening, and enjoy our conversation with Dan Shaughnessy
1: from 2021. Welcome into Missing the Point. I am your host, Michael Marcangelo, joined alongside by Bob Kelly, Rayshon Buchanan, and today we have a very special guest. He has been a fixture in the Boston sports team for five decades. His book, The Curse of the Bambino, details the heartache of the Boston Red Sox and their search for a World Series championship after selling Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees. He subsequently wrote Reversing the Curse after the Red Sox won in 2004. And in 2013, he and Cleveland Indians manager Terry Francona released Francona, a biography focusing on Francona's years as manager of the Red Sox. That book immediately became a bestseller. He was named the 2016 recipient of the J.G. Taylor Stink Award, presented annually by the Baseball Writers Association of America for meritorious contributions to baseball writing. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dan Shaughnessy. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Nice to be here with you guys. We're really excited to have you. And I, we want to talk a little bit about the Red Sox and the Celtics. We have a couple of cool tidbits about, about the Celtics that I want, I want to hear from you. But first things first, I think you know a lot of people on Sports Talk Radio now, they, they, they kind of make it their job to be a contrarian. You were the original one in Boston. I, I, so I, I'd love to, to learn or to hear about your story, especially when you're coming up you know with Bob Ryan, who is a fan writer, right? He's a great writer. But he feels all the emotions, the highs and the lows. And you made it a point to kind of run this like a business. So I'd love to hear about how that went.
2: Yeah, it's more, I'm more detached than Bob. And Bob's older than me. And, and I was reading him when I was in college and whatnot. And he's the greatest. Um, and he, his knowledge is unsurpassed. And he's a beautiful writer. But yeah, he's a seasoned ticket holder. He comes to it as a fan, more kind of rooting for the teens. He's been critical. But when I came into it, my, directives were that you were, you were objective. And I mean, none of us are really objective about sports. We all have opinions. So we bring those to it and that's the fun of it. Um, But I just feel like, you know, my job isn't to root for the team. If I were covering presidential election, I'm not supposed to choose a candidate and and do the analysis based on who I want to win as much as give you the analysis of why it's going the way it's going. And that's what I try to do. Sometimes the better story is, is when the home team loses. Um, and like right now the Celtics are more interesting when they lose. Cause like this year is not going to end well. I mean, it's not like there's going to be some turnaround. They're going to get a Why'd two, a, like two seed <laughs> and get, get it back. <laughs> this year's kind of just junk. So when they play these games last night, if I'm writing them, it's better when they lose, cause you can slam them more and it's more fun and it's got more color and flavor. Um, but so, yeah, I'm not a fan of the teams. I'm a fan of the sports. I like it when the local teams are in the playoffs. I got 12 parade covers here from page one when they win in this century. And it's always better when they win. People buy books and they have ideas. So that's good. But I don't, you know, when things go bad, when, when, um, you know, Oxco Burris catches that pass, in the end zone, and they don't go 19 and 0. I can't be all broken hearted and crying at my keyboard. So I can't write the story. I got to write that story and tell people why it, why they didn't go undefeated? What what happened here? And um same thing when, when you know, Aaron Boone hits the whole run off Wakefield or the ground ball goes through Buckner's legs. Those stories are epic. And you have to be able to write them under deadline, in my case, and not be emotionally grieving. It's like if you bet in the game, you're all pissed off and you're mad at the umpires or the officials when you're writing it. You don't want to be that guy. You should be able to bring analysis to it without the emotion of having your heart broken. So so that's the detachment that I bring to it. Fewer, fewer people do now. I understand that. It's evolution. Far more fans covering the teams now, like fans of the teams uh, that, are, that are in the room. And I push back on that. But again, that's just the way things have evolved. Yeah, I just think about it because, you know, you were the reason
1: that my dad used to actually get the Sunday, bo- the, the, the Sunday Globe. He always wanted to read you and then always wanted to read Bob Ryan because they weren't all, they were totally polar opposite views, right? But of the same thing. Um, so you, know, you touched on the Celtics. I want to ask you a couple questions about that. We'll get started there. You wrote an article back in the fall saying the Celtics aren't as good as they thought, as they think they are. How good do you think they
2: are right now? It's really messy right now. I mean, yeah, th- there's individual talent there, clearly. I mean, Tatum, Cecilia's really high for Tatum. He's great talent. Um, and Brown's better than I thought he would be. And, and so that's too Tremendous talent and smart is a guy you always have to have on the floor. Any team would want him. You can see those things. I love Thompson when he was in Cleveland, you know, inhaling the rebounds, just great. We know what Kemba Walker was. There's a lot of individual talent there. They're not as talented as they were when Kyrie was there in Hayward, who was always hurt, and the two Jays were there. I mean, that's you think about that team now. They were really talented there. and they made the finals of the conference three times in four years. But right now, it's just, it's messy. You can tell they don't seem to like each other. They're not tough. They're so soft at the end of these games. You can go over those games Dallas, Chicago, Atlanta last night. You just know it's not going to go well. They, they can have a one possession game and three minutes to go, and the other team just kicks the crap out of them. They get all the 50 50 balls and offensive rebounds. It's, this is, there's no way this is what Brad Stevens is telling them to do. So guys are just going off on their own. It's a mess.
0: Yeah, so that, that, that leads me right to my question is, in your opinion, whose fault is it then? Is it the players? You know, it's, from what you just said, you don't seem to think it's Brad because obviously Brad's not telling him, listen, guys, go be soft and dog it the entire fourth quarter. Let's see some hero ball, Jason. Let's see that, you know. So what do, what do you think? Where does the blame fall when it comes to this team? Oh, well, yeah. Danny's
2: got to be accountable for the roster building of, of what this team looks like. And I think he probably botched the with thing. He got greedy on that. Um I mean, the the I think Danny's a really great talent evaluator, and the drafting's been pretty good, and uh, he has a great eye for talent. And so, but this the way this thing has been assembled is not good, and it's not a lot of accountability there. Nobody ever blames, nobody blames Danny, nobody blames Brad, and really nobody blames the players either. Everybody's always just kind of fat and happy over there. Uh, starting with ownership, it's an unusual franchise in our town. Because any other team was doing this, you'd have people with pitchforks storming, the, storming the, the gates right now.
0: So th- I have a question about that, too, is when it comes to Brad and you say he's always happy and this team doesn't hold people accountable. To me, that's the one thing that drives me insane is when you see them blow one of these leads and Brad's up there still just chirping, yeah. played really hard tonight. We did this. We did this. Kemba's our guy. I love him. I love it when he says that. But it's like, when are we finally going to see that from Brad? Do you think that's ever coming? Is that the coach he is? Or is that it is just... It it's it is.
2: Not, it's not him. That's why he's, he's probably better off in college or high school or whatever. He's the, you know, Bula Bula guy. You're not going to get him, you know, turning over the food spread in the, in the room and just kicking ass. That's just not him. So maybe he's too nice for this. It doesn't help that he's not an ex-player. He's not pop. He's not a guy with all this gravitas to it. And uh, it gets harder and harder to, to get guys to listen to you. So um, he's he knows this is a failed experiment right now. Yeah.
3: I, I mean, I, I sure hope he does, um, you know, and obviously, you know, you know, back to your point about Danny, I hope Danny, you know, feels the same way. Um, and as far as his drafting, drafting goes, when it's a top pick, I feel like he does well. Right. So obviously Marcus Smart at six in 2014, you know, Jalen and Jays, you know, they both were the number three pick in their respective drafts, but if he has to draft anything past 14, it's really been hit and miss from James Young, you know, uh, yeah. Gershaw, yeah, but sadly it was, was just awful. But, uh, but it leads into the question I want to ask is, so, you know, what do you think they can do in the short term to kind of change the course? Or do you think they should, you know, just wait till the off season to use a trade player exception and just try to fill uh, holes in the team, you know, there?
2: Well, Rayshon, to your point, don't ever forget or forgive that Kelly Olytic instead of Giannis.
3: Oh, right. Yeah, that too. Right. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's another one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I try, I try, I try to forget that.
2: Yeah. That's Giannis, went, Giannis went like 15, so a lot of people passed on him. But still, it's one that we never let Danny forget because Kelly was two picks ahead of him. Right. I don't think they're going to use that Trade exception, what they got tonight or tomorrow. I mean, I just think this is a lost year. I think they'll wait till the summer, let it shake out. I don't think you're going to see it now. I know there's talk about the kid in Orlando, there's talk about Collins. I don't see a move like that. I mean, I think that I think a shakeup's in order. In the, the summer shakeup, it could be Jalen Brown getting traded, something like that. You know, I mean, to me, that's still on the table. I don't know the contractual situations and it confuses me and all that, but I think. Since they're not going to change Danny or the ownership or the coach, you're going to have to shake up the roster. And what would do it more than a big move like that? So you know, you've been covering the Celtics
1: for, for a long time, right? Has there ever been a period since you've been in town where they've had this much talent and underperformed this significantly?
2: Um, well, I mean, the, this is a long time. The 83 team, they were swept by the Bucks in the playoffs. And they had, they had four Hall of Famers, you know, so they lost a 4-0 series. And they had Mikhail Parrish, Bird. Um, they had Tiny Archibald. There's four Hall of Famers there. They were swept four straight. That was pretty bad. But anyway, they won 57 games during the season, so they, were, they weren't chumps. And they won the championship the next year, when they acquired Dennis Johnson. That would be the closest to being a dysfunctional. It was the end of the term for Bill Fitch before they switched coaches, and some things had to happen. And it was some really dark days in the 70s when they had, you know, McAdoo and Curtis Rowe and Sidney Wicks, and there was some dysfunction going on there, the end for Collins, all that stuff, but uh, this is a really, this is a hard team to watch. Yeah. They are so soft at the end of these games, it just makes you want to kill yourself.
0: (laughs) I'll never forget that Pelicans game is the one that stands out to me because even up 21, I was watching it with my dad, up 21, I looked right at him and went, they're going to lose this game. And he's yes. like, what are you talking about? I'm like, are you watching? It's just, it's so obvious sometimes, and you know it's coming. I was telling these guys, I've made a good amount of fake money off this team this year because of how predictable they really are when it comes to when they lose and when they win. If this team is favored in a game against an underachieving team, I bet against them 100% of the time. And I win 100% of the time. They're just so predictable and soft. I couldn't agree more. Before we uh, kind of transition to baseball, because we want to pick your brain
1: here, I did stumble upon a pretty cool story. I was wondering if you could give us a little insight into it, uh, Dan. So uh, 1985 Easter Conference Finals, you noticed that Larry Bird has uh, taped two of his fingers together. And that I think you made the comment that it might be a little bit harder for him to shoot or a shooting percentage would go down. Uh, and he challenged you to a free throw shooting contest with, with one of his hands wrapped. So I'd love just to hear a first person Kind of how that went.
2: Well, it's uh, now that we can I can sell a little product here. I just wrote a book. The book's called "I Wish It Lasted Forever Beyond November." So I, I had that team for four years, every day. And uh, in those days, it was nobody's fault. But the way it was then, we we lived with them. We traveled. We waited for bags, hotels, buses, practice, everything. It was like being on the team without the groupies or the fame or the money. But other than that, it was the same thing. So. <laughs> There we were, and you just got to know him, and we were able to tell the readers what they were like. And uh, it was a very rare time. So yeah, they called me Scoop. that was my nickname. Whenever I come into the locker room, you know, Larry would say, "Scoop, do you ever notice how quiet I guess you walk in here? You know and it was true, you know, because nobody trusted me. It was you know a very good system we had. So, yeah, he was taping it like this at practice. So he, there had been a barroom fight two nights earlier, and he he might have had a broken bone, I don't know, but if you look up his playoff shooting, he shot fifty two percent that year. It was his middle year of his three straight MVPs, height of his powers, the 60 point game, all that stuff, buzzer beaters left and right. And he got in the barroom fight, messed up his hand. He shot like 42% of the nine playoff games after this happened. But he was taping it like this at practice. And I said, after, I said, you can't play in a game like that, right? And he said, Scoop, I could tape my whole hand up, make more shots than you. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's probably true, but that's not what we're talking about here. And it was almost like a pool hustler thing. He, he kind of must have done it before. So um, they taped his hand like this. thumb so was taped. It was like a, he had a boxing glove on. And uh, we did 100. He, had, he said, we'll do 100 free throws, $5 a throw, 10 shots a round. And um, he says, you want to go first or I'll go first? I said, I said, I'll go first. He said, you don't like the pressure, do you? I said, that's right. So I went first. I made six outs. I was a good free throw shooter in high school. I, I sucked. I was a player, but I could shoot free throws. He had, um, he's six out of 10, just standing around and he made six out of 10 doing this. And then by well, the time he got to the third round, cause I was rebounding and they were all going at his, he said, I figured this out. And he did. <laughs> and, uh, he up up making 86 with his hand like that, 86 out of a hundred. And I started choking because I'm seeing $5 bills flying through the air every time i letting go here now. And, uh, so I lost $160 and, uh. Went to the old Bay Bank and got eight twenties out of the ATM. And next night he was doing his early shooting. I gave him his money. He stuffed it in his sock. He played with my eight twenties in his sock that night. And I expensed this because I wrote a funny story about it. And I told my boss I got the story came at some cost. I had to incur some expenses here. And uh, evidently the the word wager is frowned upon by the IRS, so it bounced back to accounting. So we <laughs> we switched it to eight twenty dollars lunches with Robert Parrish and. <laughs> and just followed it a day and I got my money back. But uh didn't no, that so so happen. Thanks for asking. You're welcome. Actually, to keep it with that
3: same year, because I, I know you brought up the game uh where you scored a six day against Atlanta and New was like, how how was that? Cause I'm like, I see you see the highlights, but I'm like, the highlights doesn't do it justice, man. Like just how how was that game and just like how how hot was he? And just like, was it was it really what would, would, the, would the Atlanta Hawks really just like just fawning over how good he was? he got falling over the bench. He was he was like invincible
2: was that year. He was at the height of his uh, trash talking powers. He would tell guys what he was going to do in the in pass that he would do it. Uh, he started banking three pointers just because he could for the fun of it. And he you know put his hand out for cash running down the other end of the floor. And uh, McHale had gotten fifty six nine days earlier. Yeah, I, I guess. I guess this,
3: yeah, sure. Yeah,
2: Larry was feeding him because Larry. Larry hated Kent Benson, who was an Indiana guy who disrespected him in college, so he let McHale torch Kent Benson and get him ejected from the game. Kept feeding McHale the ball, and Kev got to 56, and he came out with like a minute to go, and I said, well, Dan, you should stay in there, because I'm going to get that. And then nine days later, we are in New Orleans, because the Hawks played home games in New Orleans, because they couldn't sell out the Omni in Atlanta. So we stayed at the New Orleans Hyatt, and took a bus, went by Rick Roby's High School on the way, and Roby went to Kentucky, which was pissed off Larry because Kentucky didn't recruit Larry Burry. They thought he was too slow, so they took Roby, who was even slower. And Larry always said it was all bribes, so we went by the high school. He said, that's where putter got all those bribes when he was in high school, right there, and he was all fired up. And uh, we get to the gym, and it was all Celtic fans in New Orleans that night. And, uh, yeah, they put the press right behind the Hawks bench. We were a little elevated. We, we can see ourselves on that. And Mike Fratello was the head coach, you know, short little guy uh, Ricky Brown was a guy who had been a Celtic draftee. He was on that team. I mean, they had Dominique Wilkins. They, they, had, they had some great players. Doc uh, Doc Rivers is on that team. And, um, it, it, it kind of grew. And then by the fourth quarter in the Hawks bench, they were a bunch of knuckleheads, you know, and, uh, they, they were like leaning into each other and celebrating it fall down. And Larry started like going over to that side and just shooting right in front of them and just pointing to them. And, all that video, I mean, they're not making it up. It's true. The, the, the Hawks were actually fined for that. Oh, yeah, as, as they should have. There, there's no way you should be celebrating. I don't it care. Was, it was bad. And uh, Fratello kept switching guys. He kept changing men and, and trying everything. And Fratello, he got into a little fight with Brown. We saw the whole thing. And when it was over, the GM of the Hawks came into the Celtic locker room with the game ball and had Larry sign it. It was like a souvenir for the Hawks. Uh, yeah, he just dropped 50 in our heads. You know, it was like yeah that that all happens oh
3: uh, what, 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 what an honor right
2: good times. is he
0: right. the only player that you've ever seen reach that level where he he starts just playing around in the middle of games
2: yeah the 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 talking was off the charts. we could hear it because in those days we sat. I've got pictures I'm using in this book where we're sitting right you know where they where those people pay a thousand bucks now, like we were there with our table right there mm-hmm. and the worst was the Julius Irving. Julius was 36 years old, and Larry was in the middle of this three year MVP at the height of his powers. And you know, Julius would toy with Larry Bird in his heyday, but he was, he was cooked, and Larry was, was dominant. He was bigger and stronger. And Larry had like 38 in the second half, or 38 by the third quarter. Julius was like one for nine, and Larry was just, get somebody out here, old man. You can't guard me. And finally, Julius went for his throat. It's a famous picture that. They're grabbing each other by the throat. And it was a Donnybrook. And uh, it did not end well. I love it. Uh, that that, that could
3: never happen now. The guys would be kicked out the league. You know, oh, my God. Well, you still... Like Kermit Watson it, right? Back in the day, we did to... Um, well, yeah. To Rudy I mean, that was a little different. Though, Rudy Tomy- take
2: not- a look at the McHale takedown of Rambus in, in Game 4 of the 84 Finals when McHale comes across yeah. the floor and clotheslines Rambus. Rambus's foot almost hits the rim. He's still upended. And it was two shots. It was not even a flagrant rule then. They had to change the rules uh, all around on that, so uh, Comment that, foul. that did happen. And, yeah,
1: uh, common foul, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, you've been part of uh, so many legendary moments in Boston, but I, I don't think there's ever been one more important than the 2004 World Series, right? So, yeah before before the Sox win that, I want I want to ask you a, a question. I just want to raise questions. Is before that World Series and the curse reversed? Which Red Sox playoff moment gave you the biggest uh, heartbreak as someone who was either a fan of the sport
2: or covering the team? You know, I, I, I kinda, I'm I not old enough to have been there in the 40s and all that stuff happened. But So I was at the Bucky Dent game in 78. That was crazy. And that was horrible for Boston because they had had a 14-game lead and they blew it and ended up in a tie in a one-game playoff and you know, a 2-0 lead in the sixth, sixth inning. was awful. Um, and then the Buckner game the worst one. Because, you know, again, it wasn't game seven. People think it was. But, you know, they're, they're, they're one strike away from winning the World Series. And they had won in 68 years. It's against the Mets. It was Saturday night Shea Stadium. And the game's over. They got a 5-3 lead. There's two outs, nobody on base. At the bottom of the 10th. All they got to do is get one more out. And then three straight singles, wild pitch, and then the error. That was the worst. Because the World Series was over. They had won. And they somehow astronomically lost. And, of course, the Aaron Boone game, because, you know, Pay, that's what Brady left Pedro in too long. And uh, there was a lot of tension at that time. The teams were still popular. A-Rod, there had been a big fight to who was going to get A-Rod, and all this stuff went down. And um, never a greater rivalry than by O three O four when it was going on then. So having witnessed those three was a lot to, to bring into the 04 season when, of course, they're down three out of the Yankees. It's still the greatest Boston sports story. I mean, the first Patriot Super Bowl is pretty darn good but um, the Sox going, you know, 86 years, being down three to the Yankees in the ALCS with A-Rod having been on both teams technically um, and just all the fights they had and beanball stuff they had and the great players, you know, Manny and David and Jeter. It was just, that that was the height of it.
0: That brings me to an article that you wrote right before game four of that ALCS. That was the Lillard thing. <laughs> the, the, the Millar thing, yeah. Um, I, I got to ask him, man, what did he say to you? Because I know there's, there's the clip where he's saying, you know, Dan, you called us frauds. You did this. We're not frauds. We're going to win tonight. Was there more to it or is that what happened?
2: Well, I mean, the article, I, I shelf the stuff here. It was, <laughs> it was a hypothetical. So they lost game three. They lost 19 to eight in game three. They're down 3 that 0. Was, that was a great team. That team was a wagon. And they were down 3-0 to the Yankees, the ALCS, losing 19-8. to 8. And people were throwing shit at them and booing them. It was bad. And uh, so the next day is game four, and they're, gonna, they're going down like just dying. It's horrible. So I, in the paper, I said, if they get swept, they will go down as the biggest pack of frauds in Boston sports history. Right. That statement was true then. It's true today. It's a hypothetical. If I were seven feet tall, I would have been in the NBA. You know, I mean, it's, you say, it said, if they lose again, they go down as frauds. Well, they didn't. They won eight straight games from the moment I wrote that, and they swept their way to the World Series. So anyway, it was true then, it's true now, and Millar was saying that stuff. That whole thing about, don't let us win tonight, he was saying that to everybody. You know, and his whole thing about Schill and Pedro and anything could happen in Game Seven, he was just saying that to everybody, and I, I think that was ESPN 30 for 30, but they had the crew following everybody around, and we went hard at Theo that night. You know, Theo was hungover, and it was a lot of, it was just a bad time for them, and uh, nobody thought what was going to happen was going to, did happen, but, um, so Millar was just talking up everybody, and uh, did a good job with it, and so that clip lives on in infamy, and, and I'm actually quite proud of it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you should be, because cause it's awesome. It gives me goosebumps every time I see it, Dan, so I love it. <laughs>
3: Learn more at marines.com. Just to still kind of keep the theme with, with the past. So another question that I thought about, and you know, cause I, I love to talk about different scenarios or what if. So, um, so if you, if you could put together a starting nine, you know, for an all Red Sox team, like who, who would you have on it?
2: Oh, that's good. Uh, Rayshon, I think I did that a few years ago and I'm trying to remember now. So <laughs> when we found the is the catcher, the whole thing. And that Doug Marabelli, I'm, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. And you got, uh, Wade Boggs is the third Hall of Famer and uh, we got the outfield we got Jim Rice Carl Yastrzemski and Ted Williams all Hall of Famers Bobby Doar the second baseman Hall of Famer Jimmy Fox at first base Hall of Famer and the showstop Joe Cronin those are all Hall of Famers and Pedro would be your starting pitcher so you got there's nine Hall of Famers and David Ortiz would be your DH and he will be in a Hall of Fame so that'd be ten players right there
3: would, would, would Manny wow. be an honorable mention because I'm like I, I was like you know you
2: know that's that's more than fair, because Manny's, Manny's a better hitter than Kari Shremsky or, or Jim Rice. I mean, he just is. But, yeah. you know, the, with the three-time Royce thing, he's not going to get in the Hall of Fame. But as a pure hitter, yeah. And defensively, Rice wasn't that good either. Manny's certainly serviceable out there.
3: Right. I mean, and plus, I know Rice was also MVP. I don't think Manny ever won MVP.
2: Manny never did. Rice hit 406 total bases in 78, which hadn't been done in 30 years. So... I, I think for pure hitting, I would take Manny. Manny was just, you know, Manny was Jimmy Fox as a pure right-handed hitter. And, I mean, obviously, you know, Manny was our guy. So, I mean, it, it
3: makes sense that, you know, obviously, you know, you saw, you saw, yeah, you saw, yeah, you saw, you saw Shamsky. you saw, is, is Yaz to you the best left fielder then? Or, or, or was it Ted?
2: For all around and defensively, but, you know, he's only like a career 285 hitter. I mean, he's a little, he just had a lot of compiled numbers, like longevity. And 67 was the greatest single season of any Red Sox player. You know, Triple Crown MVP, Defensive Gold Glove, seventh game of the World Series—just his all. You know, he was seven for eight. Last two games, they had to win. All that stuff, but he was never—he didn't—he didn't have a five-year stretch like Mandy Ramirez. You know, I mean, hardly anybody. Ted Williams did, but he, yeah.
3: right, right, exactly. Yeah, because I, I know with Manny, like I know, like before he got to Boston, he had a season where he
2: had like 165 runs batted in. Manny was We'll look at the. Go look at the Cleveland team. Many was hitting seventh for Cleveland team.
0: They yeah. had Tommy Alomar, Albert Bell,
2: Eddie Murray, yeah. Tommy, you know, Roberto it's Alomar, you know, Omar Viscales, one of the greatest teams of all time that didn't win. Ooh.
1: you just mentioned uh, nine Hall of Famers, and then you mentioned David Ortiz, which spawned this question. Does David Ortiz get into the baseball hall of fame? And how does he, but not Barry Bonds?
2: Well, David sailed in. Everybody loves David. So um It's, it's, I, I, I agree with like the sentiment of what I think you're asking. I I think it's unfair. And, uh, I think for me, you either let them all in or you don't let anybody in. Yeah. And so far I've been, don't let any of them in. So I won't be voting for David. He's getting it. And I understand why. And the numbers are certainly there to your question. Yeah. I mean, I don't think Barry's any dirtier than David was. If you want to go down that path. I mean, it's just, um, this is the this is the times they played in, and a lot of people don't care about, it, and I understand that.
0: What 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 about what about Clemens then? Yeah, I was just gonna say if we're gonna open that door, yeah, I gotta ask it, yeah,
2: good, yeah. Good. I mean Clemens, I mean his Red Sox
3: career alone to me, to me is, is Hall of Fame worthy. Yes, is, I know oh, he, he won gets...
2: 192 games, three Cy Youngs, the Red Sox. Um, but I, I I don't vote for him because I again I, I've been on the wall. I don't vote for any of them. I love Roger, you know, he was great. He did a lot of good things here, and. uh I mean, he's one of the top 10 pitchers of all time by any measure. I mean, that won 354 games and seven Cy Young Awards. Give me a yeah. break. Wish, yeah. I wish he hadn't used it at the end to extend, extend it when unnecessarily,
0: you know? So, I, I have a question about that, though. So that whole era, right, is everyone's tainted from it, no yeah. matter what, for that whole 90s, 2000s era. Anyone who's ever going to get into the Hall of Fame is always going to kind of have that cloud over him in that era. Don't you just think that, a simple solution could be: is let them in, but make sure it's on the plaque. Make sure it's indicated that they're in. Yeah. But this this happened, and this is a question that we have about it. They're still one of the best players ever.
2: Well, again, a Hall of Fame that includes uh, Trevor Hoffman and and Harold and Harold Baines, it does not include Barry Bonds and Roger <laughs> Clemens. that's a little ridiculous, you know. So we know that. But uh, that's that's the, the hand that's dealt. It's it's unfortunate, and, and my fear is that Bonds and Clemens are going away forever next year. It's the last year in the ballot for them. They don't they're not getting the momentum. I don't think the old times will vote for them, and it's it's a big gap to not have those guys in the Hall of Fame because they were better than everybody in the time they played. They were. How
1: how ironic is it that players that really saved the game for, for everyone in the '90s, right? Yep. Uh, Sosa, uh, you Edouard. have and Barry Bonds that are ostracized and kept out for doing the thing that propelled the sport back into the fan of, of, of America. Right,
2: and, and there's a very likelihood that, that Piazza, Pudge Rodriguez, a Bagwell were all using, because they all look dirty, and they're yeah. all in, but they didn't, they didn't test, or they didn't have, they're not in the Mitchell Report, they didn't have the stigma that these other guys have. I thought Pudge, I thought Pudge was on the Mitchell Report, wasn't he? Pudge Rodriguez?
3: I, I, don't, I, mean, I, I don't remember him, I know Palmero Palmero was, but I mean but Bagwell in particular, I mean did 'cause didn't didn't he start here, did he get drafted by the Red Sox? Bagwell
2: was right? traded by the Red Sox. You know, yeah.
3: Know. So I mean yeah, yeah, if you look at him how small he was early on, and then by the time they became the killer bees, you know, with him, Biggio and <laughs> yeah. Berkman, it was like, Oh, this this guy really was a wagon for the wrong reason. <laughs>
2: yeah. no, no, um, you guys you guys know, got you guys yeah. got good knowledge for young guys. I'm impressed here. Thank you. Oh, appreciate yes. it, man. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Some would say we're not so young anymore, but yeah, but <laughs> right. so uh, Dan, what are your expectations of the twenty twenty
1: one Red Sox now that Alex Cora is back?
2: I like Alex. I don't hold that against him. I mean, probably we should more than we do. The people, is just—he's just, he's just really—he's a good guy and he's good to be around. He was cheating. I don't know. I just can't get all in a big lather about We're it. We're used I, to it in, in Boston it. by now. No, I, I shouldn't. Yeah. I wouldn't vote for him. I wouldn't vote him into the Hall of Fame on so that, right? But, but as a manager, given the shit show they got here and, and the horrible decision making and the cheapness up top and what they're doing to the franchise, he's good for them. These players like him; they respond to him. Him being bilingual is huge. And a guy like Devers will get way more out of Devers. It just just is, and I would want to play for him. You know, he's just a good guy to play for. I just, the starting pitching is very suspect still in my view. You can make a case, but everything's got to go just right. Um, and people like get all in a lather about, oh, Nathan Valdi throws 100. He's won nine games here in three years. He's always hurt.
0: Everyone just remembers that, that, one, that one run.
2: Yeah, he had one, one great pro, postseason performance in a game which they lost, by the way, and, and you know, he makes $17 million or over four, you know, $54 you know, four years, million yeah. for four years, so good for Nathan Evaldi, good guy. Maybe he'll finally get healthy and win 18 for you because he's got that ability, we know. You know, Eddie Rodriguez coming off the COVID, the cardiac thing, hopefully.
0: Uh, and he's your he's opening good. day starter, too.
2: Garrett Richards, I mean, he's never been a winner. He's been hurt all the time. LeVetta looks, has won like eight games in like five years. Um, Perez is a meatball artist. He pitches to contact, as they say, you know. I mean, he, he, yeah, which he is for he, he saw t- his <laughs> so he's yeah. So
0: he's Derek Lowe,
2: 2.0. He finds a lot of bats. No, <laughs> Derek, Derek, Derek Lowe was
3: much better than Martin Perkins. Derek Lowe
2: was much better. Rishon's right again. No, I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean,
3: what, what about, cause I mean, this, I mean, yeah, I, well, I, I, I would still want to keep with the current team, right? So obviously, this guy this guy was one of the main pieces coming back in the uh, Mookie Best trade last year. Um, how do you feel about Alex Verdugo? I'm, I'm a fan. He was much better last year than I thought he was going to be. Um, so do you think he's someone that can be a mainstay here going forward?
2: I, I like what I saw last year. I was pleasantly surprised. I was bothered that the Dodgers gave up on him the way they do, the way they did. I thought, you know, they didn't have to, they didn't have to give up anything in that deal. That was the Red Sox were driven to get rid of payroll. Yeah. Uh, so it's not like they, the Dodgers were in a position of strength and they gave him up very readily. That bothered me. You know, he's a little dirty in that, in that sex scandal thing they had there. There's something not right about that that's never been fully explained. So I hope he's got everything on the straight and narrow and it's all good. He is a character. We haven't been able to be what little I saw when we were around him. I liked, I think, players responsible. He's a very cocky kid, you know, and, uh, and his ability. I love his swing. I, I just, I don't think he's as good as he thinks he is or his fans think he is. <laughs> but no. there's there's something there. I just, I'm reluctant to. To anoint him just yet, because so yeah. many things. I mean, Carl Everett was the best player you ever saw for like four months at the beginning of the '98 season, yeah. whatever. It was oh, amazing. Yeah. yeah,
3: and as soon as he headed the ref, the, uh, the umpire, it yeah. was yeah. over. Yeah. It was over.
2: This this kid has this kid's got something, and hopefully, it gets steered in the right direction. So,
1: uh, Dan, I, you, you know, you just said that we that we really know our stuff. I appreciate that. I hope that you f- you still feel this way after I ask this question, because I, it just came to my my mind. You know, the Red Sox-Yankees rivalry was so great up until 2004, right? So, would you rather have those days of that rivalry being at that peak or, or, or still win that World Series and have it go away? Because it's not there anymore. I don't think that the common generation really cares about Red Sox-Yankees as much as they used to.
2: You no, know, it's a really good question. And I think that, you know, we always said when, it, when they won, it'll never be the same, and it hasn't been. And it sucks now because they're bordering on irrelevance. But I do think that there's almost nothing they could have done to have avoided where we are now. Just the way the game has, has trended, the slowness of it, young people with their devices and the speed with which they want it, how it, it's not the friend of, of fantasy. It, it's just, it's people's attention spans. It doesn't lend itself to today's, today's young people. And I understand that it's asking a lot. So, the older fans are dying off and not going to be replaced. And that's bad. So, I don't think there's much the Sox could have done about. So, I'll take those years when we had them and say that that was the height of, of that. And it was never going to be as good again, no matter what they did with drafting or signing or trading or whatever. I just don't think they could have sustained the level of intensity that we had on that thing. It was too, it was too much to sustain. Yeah. I, I, I just remember like
1: every mattered in like oh three oh four even oh two yeah. when they missed the playoffs and they won 93 and 69 right like they, they had a pretty they were pretty relevant and for the that, that three-year stretch and now if you would have told me that 17 years later that people in this in in this area would would value them below the bruins patriots yeah. it's it's wild to me i think storylines are what are what keeps people invested and they just haven't been able to to keep that up i think you know what the yankees and, uh, and having that nice little rivalry with, with the Phillies in 08-09, that was fun, but we've never come across them again. So do you think that it's like the flick of a switch that if we see the Yankees in the ALCS, we can tap into it again? You
2: could you could approximate, but you're never going to get to that level again. It would just be better than now, but you're not going to go back to that level ever. Well,
3: I mean, we, we did. I know we faced them in 2018 in the in, in division round. That was a great you know, series. Um, the, the only moment or the two moments I remember most in that series was yeah, the JD Martinez home run in in Game One, um, and then obviously Bruckhoeft getting the home run to complete the cycle. And I mean, basically that that crowd in Yankee Stadium was dead, right? Like it's it's not the same. Where you know, uh, Yankee Stadium is not the same as it was in in '03 and '04, obviously, because it's a new new fans, like like you said. But yeah, man. I, I mean, even I was even thinking about that '99 series too. Like um, Roger, <laughs> Roger, like you, you'll you'll never
2: you ne- that, that is yeah, well, the rigorous. greatest thing from A.T. Was, was the Saturday when the Yanks won here, and Sanchez hit a whole run to center field, one of the longest little runs ever. And Judge, I'm sure, shared that night. And that was the night Judge went by with New York, New York, and the jukebox by the, Sox, by the Sox clubhouse there with the boom box. And that was like the, the highlight of the series. And the Red Sox just went there and just kicked the crap out of him. Oh, a thousand runs. That was it. Yeah.
0: That team was so good, though. Which, just, which leads me to a question I have to ask you. Mookie Betts, man. So, them giving up Mookie Betts. Uh, I've, I thought, in my opinion, I was going to watch Mookie Betts in a Red Sox uniform until I was in my 40s and 50s. Like, I thought this dude was going to be a mainstay. He was one of the best players I've ever seen in Red Sox uniform. And all of a sudden, it's the team that makes the most money in baseball is cutting payroll and can't pay this dude. Can, can you can you make that make sense to me? Like, I know you said that they were going to give him up for nothing and they actually got a good return for him. But like, why did that have to happen? Was it did Mookie not want to be here? Like, what was the case?
2: Yeah, I, I have no forgiveness for them. So don't misinterpret what I said earlier. But they've tried to uh, get the lo- local media to push the narrative. Well, he wasn't staying anyway. So we had to do what we could do. That, that's bullshit. If you read his thing. It's GQ right now. Like, He, he was buying a house here. They wouldn't meet his price. They wouldn't pay. They wouldn't meet his price. That was it. It was all about money. And I understand that. It was his time to strike. He did. They weren't willing to meet it. And then, you know, they finished in last place with the worst team since 1965. The Dodgers won the World Series. They got exactly what they deserved. And that thing will never be right. There's no excuse for it. If you're going to own the Boston Red Sox and, and have a an investment of $700 turn into $7 billion in 20 years, then you have to keep that, that asset. And you have to invest in that. And overpay if that's what it takes so that the second half of the contract will be rendered meaningless and all that stuff. Say that. I don't have tone Warren to go and say what, what idiots the Dodgers are for doing this, that the money won't be worth it in 15 years, whatever. It's, it's Bullshit. You know, it's, Red Sox are more than a business. They're a public domain, you know, public entity, public trust that whoever owns it has to value that. And they, they had to, it was incumbent on them to keep them. That's on them, share with them. And David Price. They're paying $16 million for David Price to pitch for the Dodgers this year and last year. I mean, he didn't even pitch, but it's like the salary dumps for the Boston Red Sox, unforgivable. And they're going to tell you that we have the third highest payroll this year, so stop it. But that's because of all the dead money, which is Price, Petroya, Benintendi. They have dead money. and That's on them. Avaldi, in effect, is dead money. It's $17 million for not a lot, but three wins. Yeah, so head, that's head what, on too. Chris Sale, who they gave the money to. So bad decisions, don't, disqual- don't take away the notion that they're cheaped out. Every option they've had over the last 12 months, they've gone to the lowest lowest salary guy, except for Richards, who we don't know if he's any good or not. They did the same thing with Lester though, right? Remember when he, when he went over yep. when he left and they said, well, they, we wouldn't have, he, he wouldn't have saved
1: if, if, we, if we tried. And
2: Just then they tried. overpaid for price and sale and yeah. quality after not giving Lester the money. Right. How about you just try?
1: Um, I know that I know that uh, we're we're kind of wrapping up here, Dan. I wanted to ask you uh, my final question. You know, we've seen uh, over the last, I think it's been rapidly over the last twenty years that that print media has really just taken a backseat, and those that were prominent before are no longer right. There's been a big fallout now. Everyone is a is a, a an influencer, which pisses me off. How do you think you have managed to stay at the top of your game and so relevant through all of these changes?
2: Well, I mean, there would be some argument to the relevance of of myself at this time by by a a portion of the population out there, and that's that's okay. Like, I'm not relevant on talk radio anymore. They want young, young, hot takes and all that, and that's fine. I had enough of that, you know. But you know, so but and the globe thing, my audience is older, um, but there's and I think even the haters kind of keep the thing going and sustain it a little bit. So, and but the takes are. They are how I feel at the time. They're not generated to click clickbait or it's just how I feel at the time. And some of it's provocative for people. But it's just sports. We should be able to argue about Manny Rivers and Jim Rice and not dislike each other. I've always said that. It's, not, it's okay. That's what sports is supposed to be. So I'm, I'm good with it. I appreciate the question. Um, the print thing, like like one thing, like we talked about this Duxbury High thing. It used to be you could go do a high school story on the quarterback at Marshfield. He could change his life by being in the Boston Globe can't do that anymore like that yeah. kid's already online he's got you know hoop.com or whatever in their lives or their lives and they don't care about us and i understand that so we don't have the platform of the reach that we used to have i'm okay with it it's evolution you can't bay at the moon like barstool is more popular than we are and i don't like that but there's nothing i can do about it so i just skate my late here and doing the best i can and i you know it's it's i have energy about it i like the sports i love the platform and uh you know, Writing a book on 40 years ago of the Celtics was really fun. And people will actually read it because they really yeah. like Larry Bird story. So, again, well. I'm blessed. I got to read and talk about sports for 40 years in this market, 12 championships in this century, and some of the losses. And just, and, you know, young folks like yourselves who know so much about sports and still want to talk about it. So I just feel really lucky and, and blessed about it. And I try not to complain too much about it. It's not the way it used to be because too bad. it's Things evolved.
1: Well, uh, obviously, thank you so much for, for taking the time. Before we let you go, we want to always uh, let you tell people where they can find you, and you already you already give us a little bit of a preview of an upcoming book in November, so please tell uh, the listeners out there where they can find you and what they can expect from you over the next couple of months.
2: Yeah, go down to 7-Eleven and get the Boston Globe tomorrow <laughs> morning. I you think know? it's two blocks. <laughs> <laughs> well, Good luck with that. <laughs> the <paper>. Right, right. <laughs> you know, but no, so uh, Boston.com, whatever the hell, BostonGlobe.com, whatever we are, and- i'm on twitter dan underscore shaughnessy on twitter um and yeah i uh, wish it lasted forever uh, uh, Simon simon schuster Scribner, publishers november uh, old days with the celtics and larry bird and all that stuff but you guys are fun it was nice uh nice chat with you guys i wish you luck with the program well thank you so much thank you all for listening to this episode of
1: missing the point so for rayshon buchanan uh, bob kelly and dan shaughnessy this is michael markangelo signing
2: off
1: true